companies thought of human capital as back then human resources, even further back then personnel, thought of that part of their business model as their trade secret, and they held information very close to the vest. Today, there's a complete turnaround in that, and everyone is asking for information around human capital, human capital performance, human capital efficiency, human capital stability, and transparency in human capital is going to be the competitive advantage. Why? Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization, a show from the People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf, and thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important, crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y-Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about them in just a few minutes. So Jason, I've had quite a fabulous and exciting and interesting couple days. You know, talk about living in the ever-changing, never-normal world. Uh, there are some good things that happen uh, during those times. So last Friday, uh, my newest article on the executive employee disconnect, and we'll be talking a little bit about that today with our guests, uh, was published on Forbes.com. So you can do a search for the executive employee disconnect, and it should come up on Forbes. Then just two days ago, uh, I was inducted into the HR Southwest Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas. And that was followed by my, my no BS workplace presentation. And they literally had to close the doors because there were, they, they couldn't fit any more people into the room because it was a fire hazard. They were going to get fined. So they, they literally were turning away people. So that was, that was certainly exciting. Apologize for anybody who didn't make it in, but hopefully they'll, uh, they'll have me back or you'll be able to catch us at another event. Uh, we're, we're certainly happy to do it. And then last night, uh, long drive home from the airport, long day of travel. We were delayed a little bit. Uh, I got home. There was a box waiting for me on our front porch, and it was the newest book, Create a Great Culture in a Remote World. So you can get that up on Amazon, uh, or you can uh, just go to iberwolf.com and uh, order it through there. With all that happening, today's episode is extra special in that I get to, we get to talk with the authors of Humanizing Human Capital, everything we just I was talking about for the last week. And as the geek in the geezer body of the two of us, it's been quite a journey since the day of executives started talking about people are our most important asset. Then they treated them like an automobile driving off the lot that depreciates the minute it, the minute you 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 go away, they hop in your car and, and you drive away and the cost and the value of the car starts decreasing. We recently fell into the age of quiet quitting, great resignation, and executives are finally pulling out their smartphones and Googling, what's this employee-centric, worker-centric organization all about? Well, according to our guests today, Salon Shira and Stella Lupashore, a worker-centric organization is creating an environment where you honor your employees, listen up, honor your employees, where you take care of them so that they can take care of your customers. So just for kicks, I Googled employee-centric, not work, they, they, they referenced worker-centric. I looked up employee-centric and employee-centricity is a principle that places the needs of personnel as the focus of their company's operations. And instead of concentrating on company outputs, which are important, such as revenue and customer satisfaction, the corporate culture draws attention to the professionals who make those outputs possible. So we got a lot to talk about. So stick around because we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a battle today 
Uh, because Stella is going to talk about her four D's and Solange is going to talk about her four W's. But now it's time real quick for our perfect labor storm. On each episode, we talk about one disruptive, surprising or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. So here's today's perfect labor storm facts. 90% of business value for the S&P top 500 companies is in intangible assets, aka people, that are direct derivatives from, from the employees, for example, in intellectual property. Organizations that use data analytics in managing human resources have 25% higher profits than organizations that don't. And McKinsey reported that as much as $12 trillion could be added to the global GDP by 2025 if males and if male and females in the same position had parity. And I don't want to go geeky CFO on you, but anybody who understands EBITDA, E-B-I-T-A-D-A, will understand this. McKinsey found a positive correlation between purposefulness of employees and their EBITDA margins. Well, first off, Ira, before we dig into those, huge congratulations to you on that Hall of Fame induction. Um, so proud of you and, and happy that, that you were honored, um, as you should have been. And how timely, right? With everything that's going on in the world, um, you were made for such a time as this. And I tell you, one thing that's been quite clear to me is that we're experiencing a version of business recidivism where too many organizations are reverting back to poor practices with their people. Um, we've got some companies that are mandating returns to the office. We've got others that are charging employees for the cost of their training when they quit. Then we have others that are threatening to terminate staff who try to join unions. And I can't help but think that some, if not most, of some of this vindictive behavior is rooted in deep-seated institutional classism. There's still this undercurrent with certain executives and equity holders of viewing employees as property in control of the company. And many folks in the labor market now are rejecting this notion in favor of opportunities in the creator economy, the gig economy, or fractional employment. Uh, the term I used to use along with other psychologists to describe this type of rebellious behavior is psychological reactance. It's the inner rebel that every single one of us have to fight for our freedom. And right now in the future of work, there are two primarily freedoms that we are trying to seek as people, where to do our work and when to do our work. And this is why in many circles, we have folks bristling at the term human capital, because for them, it conjures up some pejorative connotations. And so it's no wonder why today's conversation with Solange and Stella on humanizing human capital is so important because we still have so much work to do in bridging the divide between people and work and leadership and making sure that we're doing that in healthy ways. And just a reminder before we bring on Solange and Stella uh, that you can earn SHRM credits uh, for each episode that you listen to. Uh, it's very, very simple to do that. Just go to our website, googleizationnation.com on the upper right, click on podcasts, and there will be a short form you need to fill out. And in return, we will send you an activity code. Uh, while you're there, if you're not already subscribed to Googleization Nation, please do so. And if you're listening or watching uh, the, 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 the live stream or whether you're listening on a podcast, uh, please rate and review the show. Um, we, we got to be in the top 1% because of you, and uh, we, we hope to keep climbing. So appreciate all that opportunity uh, to do so. Absolutely. So without further ado, now is the perfect time. Let's give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to Solange and Stella, our human capital experts for today's conversation. Can I, can I get that soundtrack just to have it with me all the time? So like when I get up in the morning, somebody's cheering. I love this. <laughs> Thrilled to be here. <laughs> Yeah, we need that some days, especially and uh, the work we're doing, or sometimes it's fighting, we're swimming upstream. So congratulations to you two um, for the book. It's great to see you again, Solange. We, we started this, our conversations, uh, three years ago, a little bit more than three years ago in the pen, during the pandemic. So we, we did a couple of live streams and we talked about it. And I, I got to thank you because you, 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 you changed the way I looked at data 
it, it took it to another level. It, maybe it wasn't a way, but it was just much deeper. And I and I remember one of the conversations we had, and and people can go back and and look this up. Uh, we were talking about although people we were talking about DEI and we we're talking about diversity, which is a numbers game. We were talking about inclusion, and I, I still remember one of the things you said, and I, I share this all the time, uh, is is that even though you can have the right number of people in your workforce, when they went to like training programs, like how many people was, was there the same level of diversity and inclusion? And, and, the, and then once people completed those training pr programs, how many people were elevated into positions, had new opportunities? So just because you had 50% white and black in a training program, was there still a preference to give all the, the white employees uh, or, or, or did, was the preference reversed to minority employees to, to be able to elevate that? And without tracking that, which most people never did, um, because they just looked at the, the workforce population numbers. Um, and that, that just sent me down a rabbit hole. So thank you for, for doing that. But this was in the beginning. You talked about you were writing a book back then. And uh, you can tell you guys did your homework a tremendous amount. So uh, tell us a little, tell, tell the listeners why you chose to write the book. And then we're going to kind of learn a little bit about the four D's and the four W's. So um, I'll start by saying um, the impetus for writing the book was the fact that we identified a gap in the literature. Okay. So I'm an academic. I'm always looking for where's the gap and how can I um, address or speak into that gap so that we have more information. And there are lots of books that are out in circulation now that deal with human capital analytics on its own, like how to do it and how to program uh, and how to measure whether or not your human capital programs are reaching their KPIs. Um, there are lots of books out there on the future of work and setting the context for what the future of work would look like. But there wasn't a book that actually combined the two. And Stella and I are in our conversations and our many conversations always migrated to this concept of the signals that organizations are giving off that management and leaders and the market, if the market can hear it, are actually not paying attention to. So I don't know, there's a commercial right now where he says the signals are all around us, right? The, the mess, the clues are all around us. Um, and we felt that there, the two domain spaces needed to be collapsed if we were really gonna make a difference um, for organizations and workers in the future. And so we combined our passions and our uh, capabilities, our competencies. Um, I'm a data wonk. Ira, thank you for the nod to how I've actually had an impact on you in the way that you think about data. And Stella is, um, and don't get mad at me, she's really a futurist. She's really thinking 5, 10, 15, 50 years ahead of everybody else. Um, and not that she isn't a data wonk, because she is a data wonk too. It's just that she really gets turned on by the concept of the future of work. And I get really turned on by the concept of data analytics and forming decision-making and boom, she put her chocolate in my peanut butter and we got Reese's. Now I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. <laughs> or I put my peanut butter in her chocolate. I don't know how that works, but don't take it the wrong way. It's just a combination of two great things, making something that's even better. Um, so Stella, tell, I, I know, you know, fascinated by, um, and again, you, you're talking my language, you know, I, I wrote, I started talking about the perfect labor storm 20 some years ago, when I saw all these trends coming together. And, and that's part of what your four D's are. So give a quick description of what the four D's are and some of where you found leading up to where this partnership with uh, Solange fits in as well. So my favorite thing to do is try to make sense and connect dots across multiple signals that are emerging. So the four Ds is nothing else that describe nothing else than describing the disruptions that are impacting the world of work in kind of loosely uh, affiliated categories. So the first one is demographic changes. The first D. These are the aging of our population, which results to 
uh, increased longevity, impact on the uh, pension system and social protection system, on the dependency uh, rate that the government cares about, on the fertility, uh, and the number of children that are coming into the population, into the labor force in a in a certain number of years, etc. It also include, includes mobility, right? Movement between geographical areas, between urban and rural areas, between jobs. All of that con starts constituting a different uh, uh, dynamics that many times we ignore it because we think, oh, demographics is not going to happen in my in the next quarter or in my uh, tenure with this company. But when it hits, it hits really hard. So the more we can pay attention and start projecting what the impact of certain dynamics in the uh, uh, population of the earth and how that will drive the availability of talent, the availability of uh, skills in geographical areas where we want them, do we need to make different decisions? Second D is digitization. So we all use devices, we sleep with them, we interact with each other, we interact with companies. It is an extension of our bodies. All of that technology uh, creates new opportunities. And of course, there's all these downsides. Uh, I don't know if you've seen yesterday, there was a little bit of a uh, noise around the number of context uh, switching, switching between apps that on average, we all switch about 1200 times a day. And every single time we switch, we have at least two seconds that we need to refocus on what's next. And during that time, cortisol spikes. And there's at least uh, 65 percent of those once we switch we're going to stay only for 11 seconds there so all of the statistics about our ability to concentrate and focus and be productive and everything that the organization expects and we ourselves it comes at a price so the more we can think about the digitization as a way to minimize friction so in a way technology goes into the back uh, background and we can do what we need to do the more we'll be able to really take full advantage of it. Third D is datafication. This is the number of the sheer volume of data that this engagement of technology creates and the availability uh, of storage capacity to store it, the availability of tools to make sense of it. All of this creates a very uh, different set of insights that we can detect patterns, we can match people, we can influence uh, uh, behaviors in a different way. Similarly, it has with a down, downside and, and a darker side, uh, the, all of this power. Disintermediation is really uh, the elimination of the intermediary in the value chain creation. Uh, one example is uh, additive manufacturing, right? When we think about the manufacturing, the, the traditional manufacturing, it, it is going to be done somewhere where there is know-how, there is uh, capacity to produce, there is low uh, cost of production, there is a supply chain that has to transport it from one destination to another. When we have additive manufacturing, you don't need all of that. You can have a 3D printing farm in, your, you know, uh, in a warehouse and you only need to worry about some of the, the inks, so to speak. Or blockchain, it's a similar type of disruptive technology that disintermediates a lot of traditional incumbents and, and traditional industries. So those are the disruptions. Hopefully you can look through the news feed uh, in a way that will help classify some of these into those categories. And, and Solange, but I, I love the four whys that you talk about, or the four W's, sorry. Uh, we talk about the whys. Uh, you talk about the four W's. Um, and it was one of those when I saw the four of them and I go, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> before, um, because we, we reference those uh, so often. Um, you want to share what the four W's are? Can I interject, actually? I'll do a faster job, and then uh, Solange will add the data okay, and the perfect. Okay. quantitative okay. aspects to it. So four W's is another framework that helps make sense of these disruptions. So instead of uh, trying to fight with the same tools we currently have in the work environment, these four Ws provide a different um, way to reconfigure the puzzle of work in a way that may provide us with more options. So the four Ws are work, workforce, workplace, and worth. Work is what is it that we need to do, not what the job description says, because barely that's accurate on day one, if, if ever. Uh, what is the 
the characteristic of that work unit? Does it have to be in person? Does it have to be, uh, can it be automated? Is it creative work? Is it very structured routine? So the more we can understand of uh, what that unit is, the more then we can say, what is the most adequate worker who can get that done? And again, we're not limited to just regular employees and contractors. We can have um, teams, we can crowdsource, we can partner, we can acquire companies. So there are more options we can tap into to solve that work workforce match problem. Once we understand the two uh, uh, combined, then we can say, what is the most optimal work environment, workplace that can do it and provide the, the, the environment conducive to, uh, to performing it? And we not just uh, dealing with home office or office office, we have coffee shops, we have um, co-working spaces, we have virtual reality, we have remote islands. As long as we design the ability to perform work in a way that uh, is consistent across all of these channels. And then the worst is really the shifting value exchange between the organizations and the workforce. And we see the uh, uh, the, the rebalancing of that, as you were describing earlier, right? All of this unionization, the uh, great resignation, the uh, exodus of women from the labor force, all of that is pushing towards that rebalancing because we are so out of luck uh, up until now. Because we all come for different reasons, but at the core, we need respect, we need to be treated with dignity, we need to have safe working environment fair pay, uh, some of the basic fundamentals that have been eroding over the past uh, few decades. And now Solange. So help us make sense of this. How, how do I mean, because we, we talk about all these concepts and we all do. Um, how do we, how do we make it real that that the, the executives start to see the impact on the bottom line exactly. and, and shareholder exactly. value? I think this is the longest I've ever been quiet in a podcast. So <laughs> that's a new one. Um, Never predictable. Um, so there's a lot of pressure now to understand how we are managing and deploying our human capital to drive economic value creation. Um, and that sounds like a term just for for-profit organizations, but it's not, it's for all organizations because if you're a for-profit, you are profit-seeking. If you're a nonprofit, you are in the business of trying to make sure that you optimize whatever budget and um, you know, and funding you have to deliver on your mission and values. And if you're a governmental organization, well, we know that you know you're measured based on whether or not you hit your goals as that agency. So um, we can measure performance for any type of organization and any size organization, and we're facing a lot of pressure now around transparency. Uh, in the old days, uh, people, human resources used to be the trade secret. You didn't disclose your salaries. You didn't disclose what programs you had. You didn't disclose your human capital strategies or your philosophy, or the only thing that the SEC required public companies to disclose was the number of employees and that's it. And most organizations that were not public didn't even do that, didn't even tell you how many people were in the workforce. And companies thought of human capital as back then human resources, even further back then personnel, thought of that part of their business model as their trade secret and they held information very close to the vest. Today, there's a complete turnaround in that. And everyone is asking for information around human capital, human capital performance, human capital efficiency, human capital stability, and transparency in human capital is going to be the competitive advantage. Why? For a couple of reasons. First has to do with the stakeholder. So we have identified five basic stakeholders, investors, communities, employees, customers, and strategic partners. All of those stakeholders want to understand what's going on with human capital. The investor, because 80% of the US GDP is service oriented. And without people, you cannot deliver on GDP. You cannot contribute to GDP. And so investors are saying, well, if people are the engine to economic value creation, we as investors want to understand whether or not you've got good or bad human capital practices and outcomes 
before we'll invest in you because that's the key to sustainable business performance. Employees wanna know how they will be treated, but not necessarily what you tell them you're going to do for them, but they want evidence. They wanna see what you've done for others that look like them in the past. So there's a whole bunch of transparency that's required there. Customers, the conference board did a, a two studies over the summer where they interviewed, where they surveyed customers. And you guys remember in the old days, customers made purchase decisions based on three attributes, price, product attribute, and customer service. That's how we thought about customers companies have to deliver products that fulfill those three attributes. Then like 15 years ago, we surveyed customers and um, we asked them what you care about and environment came into that equation, right? They wanted to know if the, the companies that they were buying products from had a negative carbon footprint or a positive carbon footprint, whether or not they were ecologically you know, conscious um, and that forced companies to actually disclose information about their green approach to the point where customers don't need to worry about that anymore because there's so much disclosure about it. They're, they're not really concerned. Over the summer, when the conference board did the survey, they found out that the top three things that customers care about when they're deciding whether or not they're going to buy your product is price, so that hasn't changed, Workforce, workplace conditions for workers, and pay equity. So customers are now saying, I one, the thing that I want to think about when I'm deciding whether or not to buy your product are, has two of the three things have to do with human capital. If I were a CEO of a consumer products company, I would be out there making sure that my customers knew that I create fair workforce workplace conditions and that I am committed to pay equity because otherwise I'm gonna lose my customer base. So we covered the three before this community. So communities really care about their the economic value creation potential, the economic impact that organizations have on the communities, however you wanna define community and employees are part of those communities. So they wanna understand how those employees are being treated. And then the last is the strategic partners. And we, you know, because of the ISO trend, you know, the ISO 9000 trend where you're only supposed to trade with companies that are certified by that standard. Well, strategic partners are now beginning to think about, well, we have a DE&I policy and we only wanna work with companies that have the same type of philosophy. So we're being really mindful of who we're working with. When you have all this information that's needed out in the world, you cannot think about human capital as a trade secret. You have to think about it as your competitive advantage. And the, we, you know, we've got two points of view here, the one from the outside looking in and the one from the inside looking out, which are your employees. So our book is really designed to help ch create a shift in the way, or as Stella would say, we need to reframe the way that we think about employees, our relationship to our employees and the impact that they have. And where I come in is I am so tired of human resources being driven by superstition. And when I say superstition, I mean beliefs, right? And opinions and hopes. Um, we need to move away from that. We have enough data and enough te technological advancement to be able to take the data that human capital creates in and of itself through its systems and its experiences and analyze that data to inform decision-making so that we move away from I think this is the right thing. I hope this is the right thing. I believe this is the right thing to, I've analyzed the data. The data is telling me this. I'm making a decision based on data. If anyone just joined in, you gotta go back and rewind this uh, and listen from the beginning because this is really a lesson of humanizing human capital. Uh, and again, right. no more assumptions, no more guessing, no more hope. I mean, we need hope. 
um, but we can't we can't flip a coin and figure this out. Uh, we don't have the time uh, to do it, and it's way too expensive. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with Geek Skeezers and Googleization Part 2 after the break. We're going to continue our conversation about humanizing human capital. We're going to talk about some of the confusion that's going on because although there's lots of talk and we probably, whether we've, whether we've entered a recession, whether we will enter a recession, where the unemployment rate's going to go, and what companies can do um, by really embracing humanizing human capital. Uh, in there and start tracking the numbers and stop, make, stop making decisions based on the past and on, hey, we're going to try this and hope it'll work out and this will all pass in six months and we'll go from there. We're going to take a quick break uh, and we're going to hear from our sponsors. Stay tuned. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not so distant future, but for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get out of jail free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion. A coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. Then knowing your why is the first step to untapped potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? And welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We are joined by Dr. Silan Shira and Stella Lukashore, human capital experts that are helping us humanize human capital and better understand it. Before we left for the break, we we're talking about uh, the importance of, of data and getting away from opinions and assumptions of, of what we need to do in HR to really lead in those areas to drive that value for the stakeholders. Um, Let's dig into that a little bit more because we do have a lot of HR leaders who are listeners to the show, and they may be wondering, where do I get this data? How do I organize it? Um, how do I go about sharing it? So what are some insights you can share with us today to help many of those HR leaders become more geeky with their data and organize it and share it in a way that drives that value and transformation? Let me start with articulating how to even conceptually think about this, right? When we talk about humanizing and human centricity, there are methods and methodologies, uh, human-centric design principles, there are different schools of uh, design work that have certain techniques and tools that bring that centricity to the fore, right? This requires building empathy, walking in the shoes of the end user that you're designing for, uh, building understanding of what it's like to you know interact with the product or with the brand the same type of centricity is starting to come to the world of hr and world of work and this demands us to think not through the lens of hr processes not through talent acquisition or onboarding or compensation or payroll or benefits but looking at it through the 
employees or workers lens, what it's like to discover the brand, what it's like to decide to bring your talent here, what it's like to get an offer or not, what it's like to get onboarded and be successful in a week or not. And moving through the organizational uh, hierarchies and roles and opportunities until you decide to leave. Even when you leave, you still have a relationship. You may recommend people to come work or not for the company, continue to buy products, come back as a contractor. So all of these touch points, now we have a lot more data that we can aggregate and capture along this entire journey. So the more we can string the data and we have now technology that allows us to do it and get a lot more visibility to the employee journey and then looking at the outcomes that when i mean uh, want to make an impact and then identifying the earliest intervention point in that worker journey to make a positive impact yeah exactly and the thing that's kind of intimidating for hr people is the data part of it right so I hear a lot of people say to me around about human capital analytics, if I wanted to do math, I wouldn't go into HR. And so there's a, not only a psychological barrier, but there's, you know, a sort of a cultural barrier around thinking about data and using data. And uh, we say it's really easy, right? Because your function already has a lot of data already built into it. And the trick is to move away from just descriptive analytics, which answers the question, what happened? Like how many people joined the organization? How many people left the organization this month? How many people had performance reviews? How many people went through training? How many people got promoted or had a lateral move? How many people, some type of a recognition award, right? Um, that kind of information is, useful because it answers the question what happened but it doesn't answer the question why something happened and we tell our listeners whoever wants to listen to us speak our clients uh, when we do work at the conference board we're always encouraging hr people to actually think about doing the next level of analytics up which is called diagnostic analytic uh, diagnostic analytics which answers the question why something happened to answer the question of the why, we need more than one data point. We need to understand two or three or four data points. And all the data is there. You don't need to create any data at all. You can just go into your HRIS system and you can look at attrition rate. And then you can look at how much you've invested in training and development and see if they go together, right? So what we're trying to do is help organizations really understand, is there a relationship between one part of human capital and the outcomes that we're seeing? So when we invest in people, do we see lower attrition, right? When we do mobility, do we see longer average tenure? So what we're trying to do is connect the dots to try to achieve the outcomes that we hope to in human capital. And beyond just looking at the, the trends and the movement is really distilling that performance to something that is measurable and, and expressed in financial terms. So Ira, one of the things that you, you know, open the show with is um, this concept of impact, right? But the impact isn't just human capital's impact on human capital, it's human capital impacts on how well the enterprise, the company can perform. So just one quick example is something that's called HCROI, Human Capital Return on Investment. Anyone can calculate this. We actually have an online calculator that's free. You put in five pieces of data and it tells you what your human capital return on investment is. You want it to be more than one. It's like any ROI measure. What do I put in? What do I get out? When you put a dollar into a savings account, how much are you going to get back on that dollar investment, right? And you want that to be high. So the idea of HCROI is what is the return, financial return that we are getting in the financial investments that we make on people? 
And if it's more than one, it means you're getting a positive return. And if it's less than one, it means that for every dollar you spend, you are not getting at least a dollar of financial return or profitability in the company based on that employee's productivity. So we need to start shifting the way or reframing the way we think about the economic impact of human capital. And I think Stella said this earlier about connecting the dots, re, kind of reframing, connecting the dots. And, and Solange, you talked about the relationship between the dots and how they relate. And it's not, not always a direct relationship. So just to give our listeners, because we're, we're coming toward an end and we have a couple questions that we want to, uh, additional questions we want to get to. Uh, but, you know, you, you talked about if there's an investment in training. Uh, and, and so often HR or the leaders say, but well, we train them and then they left. But there's not, a, it really is, well, who did you train? Was there an equal effect? Maybe people left because they said, well, we're not going to be very good at this or this doesn't fit our culture. But for, let's say you left, even you lost 40%. But if you retain 60% is what was the impact of that 60%? And did you have the same impact male and female? Did you have the same impact across generations? Did you have the same across different diverse groups? Um, that's what this does, but you got to start somewhere and you got to start with a measurement. So that's what you turned me into, Solange. I'm going to blame you or give you credit for that. Uh, kind of how to look at this because people just throw out this, well, we, we trained all these people and half the group left and go, yeah, but what happened with the 50% that stayed? And, and, and the ROI might've been much greater. And with that, we, we're going to have, we have one more question. We'll throw this out to both of you and then we have, we're going to do our lightning round. Was there something we should have asked you that we didn't? Yes. <laughs> uh, I think the, uh, the traditional ways of thinking about people analytics in general as, you know, something that we uh, count people or count the HR process efficiency and putting it all in one bucket. Uh, all in the pursuit of increasing or predicting attrition, I think we we can move uh, into a more sophisticated uh, range of analytics uh, measurements and, and ways of looking. So one, it's around employee experience or worker experience. What is it that we do as HR professionals uh, and how that impacts the workers' experience and how they feel here in, in our organization. We definitely need to have the discipline of having processes and uh, programs that are effective and accomplishing its set goal. And then what are the business impact or the outcomes that we care about as a company? And what is the relationship between those three buckets? So I think that will give a lot of richer uh, set of insights and actions on or um, areas where we can put interventions in place. And I just want to respond to Jason's comment at the top. He said that organizations are taking some vindictive action. Um, and I would think, I would suggest that we reframe that. It's not about being vindictive. It's about organizations feeling like they are losing control. And they are. They are losing control because the work, the workers, um, actually now are calling for agency. They want their voice heard. And when their voice isn't heard, they leave. And so organizations feel like they're out of control, that they can't control the workplace, the workers anymore. And what Stella and I suggest in the book is that you need to shift, again, reframe the social contract between your workers and the organization. And it's not this paternalistic controlling relationship anymore. It has to be more of a partnership organizations have to listen to their employees and they have to respond appropriately because those employees are what's driving the organization's ability to be successful. And if you're biting the hand that feeds you, you're not going to win. That's so true, Solange. And all of these things we talk about in the book. So if you want a blueprint for figuring out how to get from point A to point B smartly, right, respectfully, then get the book because we really lay out a blueprint. That's there. right. And controlling relationships rarely turn out good in life, whichever way you slice it. So I love the way that you you put it out there is it really is a partnership. And we've got to make sure that, that both sides are providing that value across the aisle to the other because it is really uh, a system that has to work together. 
in order for the things to work. Well, we've we've come to the end. I can't believe it already. We're, we're getting ready to do our lightning round. And so our lightning round is where we're going to ask each of you two questions to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. And so um, Stella, we'll start with you. And then we'll let uh, Solange answer her question next. But then we'll flip it on the second question. All right. And we'll have Solange go first. So, Stella, you can have some think time on the second question. So here we go. Let's start with this one. All right, Stella, if you could pick any superpower in the world to have, what would you pick? Oh, I already have it. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be good. What a teaser. (laughs) Connection. I do believe in connecting dots, connecting ideas, connecting people. So um, that's where the innovation happens. That's where relationship, friendships come across. So connecting to all of you, it's a privilege to. I love that. And how about for you, Solange? So I'm really torn. I love the idea of telekinesis and teleportation. So I could go any place at any time. I could be on the Champs-Élysées having a little carrot, a cookie and a coffee one moment. And I could, you know, be someplace else in Hawaii, you know, sipping some Hawaiian drink. Notice everything's around food and drink with me. Um, But I'm really compelled by the idea of being able to read minds. And I'd love to be able to do that just really understand what people are thinking and feeling and understanding. I love that. And sometimes you may want to have the ability to just be able to turn that off and not have that power on some days too, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. Or combine the two powers so that I could drink and eat and also read people's minds at the same time. There you go. Hey, technology is advancing. We're going to have uh, some of these uh, uh, implants and uh, brain sensors that allow us to cool. understand a lot of stuff. So stay tuned. Absolutely. All right. And here goes question number two. So Solange, we'll start with you on, on round two here. Who's your favorite musical artist? <laughs> oh, that's so unfair. Um, or how about a favorite song? So what came into my mind, and I'll just share this because it's like, you know, Ira, I'm going to challenge you on being geeky. Um, the first thing that came into my mind was Carol King. And I think that's because um, that was like the first music I ever listened to when I was like a little kid, the Tapestry album. And that was sort of how I got introduced to music was with Carol King. So I'm gonna default to that and um, her music and her genre of music. And I'll go with Bono and I'm seeing him in two weeks. And the reason, number one, of course, the music is amazing, but number two is the impact uh, he had on the world and um, being the figure that helped make AIDS from a deadly disease into uh, a condition that can be managed and can be lived a long time. It's just incredible. Uh, So to me, he's an inspiration, both as a human, as an influencer, and uh, as an artist, performer, musician. I love that. And, and I can't believe this is the first time that we've gotten Bono in, in the many episodes that we've done, Ira, um, especially <laughs> when you get to the level as a musician where literally one name is what you go by, you know, exactly. Cher, Elvis, Bono, Madonna, um, those types of folks. I'm surprised that that's the first time that we've had had Bono come up, but big fan myself as well. So thank you both for sharing a little bit more um, about yourselves. Before we let you go, Again, share the name of the book with us and share also some information um, in regard to how folks can reach out and learn more about the work that you're doing on humanizing human capital. So all the information about the book is available on our website called humanizinghumancapital.com, which is the same as the name of the book. You can find where to buy it. You can find the 20 principles we have that will be also a good structure and ways to simplify the activities that you can engage with. You can both find uh, Solange and I on LinkedIn and uh, looking forward to hearing your feedback and uh, you know, being the, uh, the source of um, information for anything you may need along the journey of transforming and bringing more humanity to the world of work. And Solange, HC Moneyball as well? HC Moneyball is my company. We provide a software solution that helps HC human capital and financial professionals instantly calculate those human capital metrics 
so that you can understand the materiality of human capital impact on sustainable corporate financial solutions. So you don't even have to do that much work. Just come and get our software and it'll it'll all be done for you automatically. And congratulations on the book. I, again, oh, I, this you. has been a three-year conversation with you, Solange, and you were working at it. And it's great to meet you for the first time, Stella. Congratulations. I will tell everyone, uh, I, I read the text version of it, kind of a preview of it. Uh, but yesterday I was listening to the audio, audio, uh, audible version, the audio. It, it really is an easy listen. And it's and although this sounds like it's pretty geeky, it's not that difficult of a read either. Um, so um, again, I, I highly encourage everybody to go out humanizing human capital. Thank you both for being here. I'm sure we'll be in contact quite a bit coming up. Jason, I know we're running tight on time, tight on time here. What were some lessons that you learned? Uh, the biggest one for me to take away was um, hearing them talk about moving from descriptive to diagnostic um, when it comes to looking at the data. Um, instead of just looking at descriptive, which is what happened, you got to look at the relationships. And that's where the diagnostic piece comes in. Why did the data turn out this way? And then ultimately, that can lead you to uh, making predictive uh, type of decisions of forecasting into the future what you're expecting to happen. So just hearing them describe uh, the importance of moving in that direction with the data was, was really fascinating. And I think the encouraging thing for our HR listeners who are thinking, how am I going to do that is they were sharing that you don't necessarily have to go out and get a whole bunch of new data. You just need to think about the data that you currently have in a different way. What was really encouraging for me or a reminder for me is that it's about connecting the dots that having come back from, from a series, uh, six or seven different SHRM conferences and meetings uh, with leaders, everybody's looking for that one solution. If we do this, they expect it to be linear. If we do A, B happens. If we do C, D happens. And the, the fact is that there's so many different uh, relationships and connections and about connecting the dot and how we need to do that. Uh, HR probably is the holder of as, as, as much, if not more data, points than, than uh, the, the financial and accounting, uh, it, except it doesn't get used. And I'm so happy that this book came out. Uh, it really is a, a for, for a very, very complex and complicated subject. It's really a very simple read with some simple solutions and some great places to start. So Humanizing Human Capital, highly recommend that. And uh, while you're out reading books, if you want a short book, it's about, it's, it's a small book. It's about a hundred pages. It's, it's about how to create a great workplace in a remote world. Uh, next week, we're going to have, uh, I co-authored that. I was just one of, of, of four other coaches that wrote that. Uh, and they will be on the show next week. So we're really looking forward to, to having them uh, visit. Uh, if you're not a member of Googleization Nation yet, please go up and do that. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. I think it's time to probably sign off there, Jason. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you. That's right. And so thank you for tuning in today. If you haven't had a chance to like and subscribe to the podcast, we would appreciate it if you would do so. Drop us a rating and review um, as well. We are in the top 1% now in the world and popularity, and that's because of you. So thank you for tuning in every week. We're gonna continue doing our best to bring on wonderful guests like Solange and Stella to continue bringing value to you. So until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf, and remember, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>